Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, we completed the tutorial, said goodbye to the Indar Spire, and honored the memory of Trask Olgo. Now, in episode 24, we get to know Terrace by putting off the main quests as long as possible to do side quests and witness Darth Malak's terrible power during the destruction of Terrace. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. So we're Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, right? We are deep into the game. Well, we are going to get deep into the game. This is developed by Bioware. It was released July 15, 2003. Written by Drew Carpatian, I think, and James Olin, and directed by Casey Hudson. Yeah, I, I think it's Carpatian, but, uh, but yeah. It's weird because there's like <laughs> a name, Carpatian, and like magic that's spelled very differently. Anyway, this is not relevant. That's not relevant. Yes. Apologies for <laughs> doing my best. It's, I realize we have real people names in here, and those are the ones important to get right. So we are on part two of Terrace, the rescue of Bastila Shan and the bombing of Terrace. Part one last week was with the wreck of the Endar Spire. When we left off, Karth Onasi and Revan just barely made it off the Endar Spire with their lives on the ship's last escape pod. The pod was severely damaged when it crash-landed on Terrace in the planet's upper city. Karth's wounds were superficial, but Revan winged his head and was knocked unconscious again. Before the Sith search party could locate their pod, Onasi dragged Revan into a nearby abandoned apartment and laid him in a bed to recuperate. While Revan was sleeping it off, he experienced a forced vision of a female Jedi he didn't yet recognize fighting a Dark Lord of the Sith wearing a cool mask. But why would a lowly Republic soldier be having such visions? Revan was unconscious, but his body thrashed while experiencing the vision, like a person having a very lucid dream or a dog chasing a cat while it slept. Okay, not that cute, but you know, you get the idea. Two brief notes before we return to the story. First, there will be a lot of character profiles in this episode because like half of the game's relevant characters are found on and around Terrace, including Bastila, Darth Malak, Karth, Mission Vow, Zalbar, Kandaris Ordo, and more. Please bear with us. Second, and most importantly, no matter how you personally feel about Karth Onasi, no matter if he gets on your nerves because he really doesn't want to talk about it, no matter how many times he says, down you go, you should remember, always remember that he was right about the Jedi and Revan the whole dang time, even if he didn't know it. In a Spartan apartment on the ragged Outer Rim World Terrace, Revan wakes from a recurring force vision that caused him to convulse in his sleep for two straight days. Wait, t two days? Uh, apparently, yes. Karth states that Revan was out for a couple of days and that he convulsed most of the time. We've made light of Revan getting knocked unconscious, uh... A lot, but between Malak's betrayal, the Jedi mind wiping him and taking a hard wing to the head in the escape pod, it's pretty clear he's got worse space CTE than a guy who's been playing in the NFL for 15 years. That's a dark joke, but it's not wrong either. Karth is there to answer questions, despite having done a lot during Revan's siesta. Onassi found the Republic escape pods that landed... <clears throat> Excuse me. Onassi found the abandoned apartment, discovered that the Sith believed Bastila 
was in one of the Republic escape pods that landed in Terrace's lower city and fretted over Revan. The Sith were busy as well. After Bastila presumably landed on Terrace, Darth Malak blockaded the world with his Sith fleet and declared martial law. Sith officials were installed into high-ranking political positions and groups of Sith troopers along with some scattered dark Jedi prowl every level of the planet on continuous patrols. All right. Character profile. We're getting into Karth Onassi, and he doesn't want to talk about it. If you ever get tired of hearing Karth say that, just remember he has good reason to be defensive. His life has been traumatic, to say the least, like many characters created for Knights of the Old Republic. Onassi got his backstory fleshed out in John Jackson Miller's run on the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Born in 3994 BBY on Telos 4, Onassi joined the planet's militia when he was old enough and then left to join the Republic Navy. At some point before departing, Onassi married a woman named Morgana, and they had a son named Dustel. Both remained on Telos 4 while Onassi was away. By 3964, Karth was a helmsman on the ship Courageous, serving under his mentor and idol, Admiral Saul Karath. He also received the nickname Fleet. When their battle group was routed near Taras, Karath established a fallback position at Sirocco and called all remaining Republic vessels to the planet to regroup. While there, Onashi landed ships on Sirocco and met a disguised Zane Carrick, and the rogue Jedi left a lasting impact. Carrick showed compassion for the native Stare people, and he openly questioned Republic policies on the Mandalorian Wars. Later, Zane snuck aboard Onassi's personal ship, the Deadweight, in a desperate attempt to warn Admiral Karath of a devastating attack he foresaw via Force Vision. Karath did not believe Zane and instead arrested him for his supposed role in the Padawan Massacre. Just then, the Mandalorians arrived and launched nuclear warheads at Sirocco, bypassing the Republic fleet entirely. Dozens of nukes made impact and turned the planet's surface into glass craters. Later, an emotionally broken Zane found out that Onassi had actually warned about 17 cities about the blast, saving many lives by sending them to shelter underground. Fleet was happy to help and said that he'd want his family to receive such a warning in the event of a disaster like that. Through 3963, Onassi fought in the Mandalorian Wars with the Republic and crossed paths with Zane Carrick a couple of other times. By 3960, Karth was a hardened veteran, and he watched as Revan and Malak took the Republic fleet with them to the Unknown Regions. In 3959, he was horrified to discover that his mentor, Saul Karath, had defected to Revan and Malak's new Sith Empire. Onassi bore a bitter hatred for Karath after that, but the worst was yet to come. Later that year, Darth Malak ordered Karath to annihilate the strategic Outer Rim world of Telos IV. Karath passed this loyalty test, bombarding Telos IV so completely that much of the atmosphere would become acetic vapor. Onassi was stationed with the Defense Force in a nearby system, but they couldn't respond in time. When he landed on his destroyed homeworld, Karth found his wife dead and his son missing. He searched for Dustil for some time before believing the boy to be dead. Sadly, no one gave Onassi's family any warning. This act hardened Onassi completely. He resolved never to trust again to avoid the sting of betrayal, and he further determined that he would m- take revenge for the murder of his wife and son on every Sith he found, especially Saul Karath. 
unknown to Karth, does still survive the bombardment and joined the Sith due to his strength in the Force and hatred for the Republic and his father for failing to stop the attack. Karth probably won't be too happy about that when the gang gets to Korriban. Onassi fought with the Republic in the Jedi Civil War, and in 3956, as you're no doubt aware, Karth was stationed on the Indar Spire when it was pulled from hyperspace above Terrace. Revan will, Revan will find all this out after Karth says he doesn't want to talk, it, talk about it at least six times. So it's quite clear that Malik has pulled out all the stops to try to secure Bastila. Karth says that fully half of the Sith fleet is searching Terrace for the powerful Jedi Knight. Early in her training, Shan manifested an extremely rare force ability known as Battle Meditation, which can turn the tide of entire battles by boosting ally morale while lowering that of her enemies. Darth Malak intends to turn her into his apprentice, but won't hesitate to destroy the planet to kill Shan and keep the Jedi from using her abilities further. Malak has all the subtlety of a bull in a china shop, but he's nothing if not brutally effective. Revan learns all this through Karth's expedition dump, and the duo plans to find Bastille and get off-world as quickly as possible. No, I'm just kidding. Karth and Revan are going to wander around Terrace for about seven hours of game time, pick up four of the game's nine companions, and run back and forth in the upper city a dozen times through the map's confusing layout and fetch quests. However, Karth has one last piece of advice from one grunt Republic soldier to another before they venture forth. Onassi says to watch out for the dark Jedi on Terrace because they can use the dark side of the Force. Karth has heard some pretty horrible stories about the dark Jedi and their aggressive interrogation methods. He warns Revan ominously, They say the Force can do terrible things to a mind, can wipe away your memories, and destroy your very identity. Location Profile Terrace Bioware originally created the planet Terrace as a means to suck the player in by making them care about the planet and them having Darth Malak bombarded into the Stone Age early on. In doing so, the developers hoped that the destruction of, of Terrace would give Malak a definitively evil moment to show what kind of antagonist the player was going up against. The Outer Rim Ecumenopolis, known as Terrace, was once a beautiful world with gleaming cities covering all its landmasses and pristine seas covering the other 30% of the planet. As is so often the case, however, that splendor came at a terrible cost. More than 1,300 years of space racism, classism, and civil war that calcified social hierarchies along rigid class and species lines. And that's before we discuss the worldwide ecological disaster that choked off the planet's one source of food. You know, if you step back, Terrace resembles nothing so much as a chilling vision of things to come for Earth, and that's endlessly depressing. The history of Terrace begins sometime between 7,000 and 5,400 BBY, when a sleeper ship of human colonists landed on the planet and built a new settlement. Over the years, the colonists spread to every corner of Terrace as the population began to grow exponentially. With nowhere left to build horizontally, the people of Terrace began to look vertically. The outer rim world, the outer rim world, would grow into an ecumenopolis like Coruscant and Nar Shaddaa, but with few, but with a few key differences. Terrace would take just one thousand years to build up, as opposed to many millennia for those other city planets. In turn, Terrace was covered with skyscrapers that all shared a gleaming, rounded appearance instead of a hodgepodge of styles like Coruscant. Finally, Terrace retained the oceans that covered 30% of its surface, which was unheard of for a city planet. 
Sometime before 5300 BBY, the overcrowding on terrace became apparent, and so they built a large underground city to give them more space. This level was completed in 5300, and eventually became the fabled Promised Land. By 5100, a new city was completed that covered all of Terrace's available land and sat atop the underground level. Later, the world's labyrinthian sewer system would be built under and around this level, later called the Undercity. From 4600 to 4300, three more cities were built on top of one another, bringing the total number of levels on Terrace to five. These levels would be come to be known as the Lower City, Middle City, and Upper City. After the first city level was finished, kelp harvest from the world's oceans became the only food source due to a lack of land to grow anything. By 4300, Terrace was a prosperous outer rim world that was booming financially due to a nearby hyperspace transit hub. Unfortunately, things turned very bad for Terrace in 4156 when new, shorter hyperspace lanes were discovered that bypassed the world completely. Planetary population decreased, businesses died off, and what was once a thriving world quickly devolved. In an effort to stave off the inevitable, the Teresian economy moved toward industrial production. While this did prop up the economy for a short time, the new industries produced monumental amounts of toxic waste, which polluted the oceans and killed off most of the kelp. The rich began to hoard the dwindling kelp supply for themselves, an act that would set the stage for war. Lovely. In about 4056, after a century of starvation, the brutalized lower classes of humans and non-humans rose up in revolt and attacked the nobility of Terrace. The Teresian Civil War raged for some time, killing millions and demolishing entire sections of the city planet. In the end, the nobles won and further repressed the lower classes of Terrace. Poor humans were forced to live in the middle and lower cities, while non-humans were treated far worse and almost exclusively pushed into the lower city, while also suffering public discrimination. Although the Teresian nobility tried to entrench their human-centric worldview at all levels of society, many poor humans viewed the alien species as allies and friends instead of enemies. Following the Civil War, there were far too there were far too many rebels still living still living to place them in prison, so the wealthy began the practice of banishing criminals to the Undercity. Living out your days in sunless, sewage-filled basement level would have been bad enough, but the rat ghouls made it a living nightmare. Sometime before 4056, the rat ghoul plague had come to Terrace and had been completely quarantined in the Undercity. Rat ghouls were feral, eyeless monsters who were long thought who were long thought to be uh, out-of-control beasts, but were actually a Sith spawn created by a long-dead Lord of the Sith who could control them with a talisman. Of course, none of that mattered to the poor people of Terrace, who were forced to live in starvation and squalor, in addition to the constant fear of catching the Death Plague. During the ensuing years, elites in the Upper City killed off the remaining kelp and began to rely on imports for sustenance. Around 4,000 BBY, the first swoop bikes, which resemble hovering motorcycles with no wheels, were invented on Terrace. Swoop racing then became a sensation across much of the galaxy, though it also served to attract slavers and hired goons to Terrace, like Zerka and the Exchange. As the Mandalorian Wars approached, things didn't get much better for Terrace. Around 3970. 3977, the Jedi Order bought and renovated an old tower, setting it up as an academy and renaming it the Jedi Tower. 
In 3976, a swoop gang war broke out that would last for 20 years between the Hidden Becks and the Black Volcars. In 3966, Terrace was admitted to the Republic after corporate shenanigans and backroom deals bribed enough senators to secure entry. Then, in 3964, the shit really hit the fan. First, the Mandalorian Wars finally began to encroach on Republic space, with Terrace as the flashpoint. Republic ships cordoned off the world, but that line would only hold for so long if the Mandalorians attacked. Second, the five Jedi Masters who resided in the Jedi Tower committed the Padawan Massacre, which saw them murder four of five apprentices after misinterpreting a prophetic force vision. The fifth Padawan, Zane Carrick, witnessed the murders but escaped the Jedi Masters and later the planet with a colorful cast of characters. Carrick was publicly blamed for the murders and went on a year-long series of adventures to clear his name. Terrace was subjected to mob violence after Zane escaped because the citizens believed the Jedi had failed. Finally, before 3964 was out, the Jedi abandoned Terrace in the wake of the Padawan Massacre, which Mandalore the Ultimate took as his signal to invade the Republic. The Mandalorian invasion of Terrace took longer than expected due to a resistance movement led by swoop gangs, a formerly corrupt Centroform senator, and many locals. The Mandalorian invasion was ultimately successful, however, and they would occupy the world until 3960 when the Mandalorians met their fate. Things were fairly quiet until 3956 when Darth Malak decided to set a trap for Bastila Shan above the planet. Canon Alert 22. Very little is known about Terrace and Canon except that it was once an ecumenopolis that had suffered some large-scale catastrophe, the cause of which was lost to history. By the time of the New Republic in 5 ABY, which is after the Battle of Yavin, the planet was an utter wasteland of decaying cityscapes, toxic sludge, and destroyed starships. Nature had also begun, begun to encroach on the former city planet with swamps and overgrown foliage, overtaking many urban areas. Uh, this all seems to imply that Sarah, that Terra suffered a similar destruction in Canon as it did in legends, but none of that has ever been, none of that has been specifically confirmed. The few survivors who remained on world lived in shipping containers and other makeshift hovels on the surface. While Terrace was introduced in canon in the novel Tarkin, its most famous appearance came in 2016's anthology film Rogue One. There, in Zero ABY, one of the rebel leaders present for Jen Urso's briefing on Yavin 4 was the Teresian representative in the Imperial Senate, Tenra Pamlo. During the scene, Senator Pamlo expressed concern that open war against the Empire would lead to the destruction of her people. This fear was later realized, albeit indirectly, when Grand Moff Tarkin ordered the destruction of Alderaan, uh, Alderaan as an example for harboring rebels. Briefly, in case you knew or forgot, when we talk about canon, we mean everything that Disney had added since they wiped the old Star Wars continuity in 2014. You'll recall that Disney kept the prequel and original trilogies as well as the Clone Wars animated series, which ran for six seasons from 2008 to 2014, as canon materials. Everything else from the old Star Wars expanded universe was restructured and placed under the non-canon designation, Legends. However, the Legends continuity wasn't erased by any stretch. Its Legends content is still produced via the continuing expansions to the Old Republic MMO. Many Legends novels still receive reprintings, and Legends content is forever being adapted to the new canon. 
There's also our Humble Podcast and, oh yeah, the whole rumored Knights of the Old Republic movie in the offing. Besides, as Grand Admiral Thon said, even when false, legends can be most informative. If you've played Knights of the Old Republic, you probably remember the scene as Karth and Revens leave the safe house. Two Duros are being shaken down by a Sith soldier and a couple of battle droids. Before either of our heroes can intervene, the Sith soldier executes one of the Duro, uh, executes one of the Duros while disparaging all aliens as scum. Oh good, 15 seconds out of the apartment, we've already witnessed a hate crime. Luckily for the unnamed Duro, do-gooders Revan and Karth are there to dispense a little vigilante justice, cutting down this space fascist and his droids. As they depart, the Duro thanks them and says that he will move the body to throw the Sith off everyone's trail. Karth and Revan help out the people of Terrace Upper City by creating a series of <laughs> by committing a series of burglaries on the nearby apartments. We know that Revan made all light side choices on his journey, but breaking and entering usually doesn't affect your light dark alignment, so we're going with it. Eventually, the dynamic duo stumble into a woman named Dia who has a big problem. Earlier, Dia had rejected a man named Holden's drunken advances, which embarrassed him in front of his friends. So Holden did the only reasonable thing. He changed his ways and decided to respect women's agencies and boundaries. Just kidding. He went to the local hut crime lord, Zax, and placed a large bounty on Dia. Perpetual good good boy Carthonassi is hopping mad and ready to defend Dia's honor. And honestly, we can't blame him. That's some bullshit for Holden to pull, and Revan will give him a stern talking to whenever they actually get to the lower city cantina, or he'll wait for Bastila to join the party so she can use a Jedi mind trick. In any case, the bounty will be lifted, Dia's problem will be solved, and Holden will learn a valuable lesson about not being a giant asshole. By now, Revan and Karth have developed a plan to rescue Bastila and escape Terrace. It's simple, really. First, they will get to the Undercity, then find the Jedi, and last, make contacts with the Exchange in order to book passage off-world. It's not so hard, all they have to do is take two quick elevator rides down and they should be fine. Of course, this wouldn't be an RPG if the main questline wasn't Rube Goldberg, device of dumb bullshit. Now that Revan and Karth know they need to find a Sith in a Sith disguise, they head off to complete the main quest and escape the doomed planet as quickly as possible. Sorry, that's wrong. It appears we're doing hours of meaningless side quests for nominal XP and credits as one does. In the upper city, Karth and Revan visit the local clinic, which is run by a kindly old man named Zelka Forn. He's particularly concerned about the increased rat ghoul attacks in the undercity, wants to get his hands on some of that rat ghoul serum the Sith carry. Zelka intends to synthesize the serum and distribute it to the good people of Terrace. However, his conniving assistant, Gurney, says Zax would pay top dollar to get his hands on the serum and hoard it for profit. Revan isn't so heartless because he knows that medicine should be given to those who need it. KOTOR made the argument for universal healthcare a series of light side choices in 2003. Revan and crew would later find some radical serum and return it to Zalka, who synthesized a cure almost immediately and sent the new batch to an undercity healer. Healer then distributed to all the outcasts and kept extras around. The Rackle Serum side quest is one of a handful of side quests that Revan and his companions are directly confirmed to have completed. And these references are usually found in the Old Republic MMO, and they again confirm Revan made all light side choices. 
As you can tell, we won't be able to cover every side quest in the show, but if you want to hear about a specific side quest or dark side choice, let us know which ones you would like us to discuss. If we get enough suggestions, we will compile them for a later segment. It'll probably have a terrible name. When Revan and Karth finally make it to the Upper City Cantina, there's plenty of dueling and games of Pazak to be had, but they stumble upon the main quest anyway. Revan easily beats the other duelist in the ring, especially Deadeye Duncan, and hustles some chumps out of their money and cards before meeting a Sith officer named Sarna. She and many of her colleagues are upset about being stationed on a backwater like Terrace, so they intend to blow off a little steam with a big party in a nearby apartment. Once the local Sith... I forgot that I wrote polycule. Once the local Sith polycule gets going and the members pass out from alcohol, Revan absconds with some Sith trooper armor. After all that, Revan and Karth make for the elevator, but are interrupted by two children committing another hate crime. The kids are beating and taunting an Athorian who cannot fight back for fear of being arrested and tossed in the Undercity. Our heroes intervene and tell those kids that space racism is bad before giving the Athorian some much-needed medicine. For the dark side or gray Revan who chose not to get involved, the young boy kills the Athorian before moving on. Seriously, Terrace, what the fuck? Canon Alert 23. Pazak first appeared in canon in 2016's Aftermath, Life Debt. The game's rules in canon are largely the same as in Legends. Two players square off against one another and draw numbered cards. A round is won by the player whose cards add up to 20 or who is the closest without going over, though rounds can end in a tie. Multiple rounds are usually played and each player can draw a limited number of special cards from their side deck. The cards add or subtract points and may be played at any time that the player deems them strategically necessary. Game's origins are unknown, but it is said to be an ancient card game and favorite of gamblers in casinos like Canto Bite and cantinas like the one at Maz Kanata's Castle. After the Battle of Endor in 4 ABY, it's after Battle of Yavin, the New Republic created Pasek cards that had the faces of high-ranking Imperial leaders and the bounties placed on each. The New Republic then distributed those decks to bounty hunters. It's not important, but we would be remiss if we failed to mention that those Iraq's most wanted cards of playing cards from 2002 and the height of the Iraq War were adopted to the Star Wars canon via Pasak cards. If you don't know what any of that IRL stuff we just said means, consider yourself lucky. Despite the odd reference, Pazak is just another example of the Knights of the Old Republic legacy in canon. Finally, Revan dons the Sith armor disguise and heads down to the lower city just in time to be caught in the crossfire as three black Volkers are fighting three hidden Becks. The Volkers win and immediately attack Revan and Onassi, which results in their deaths. Things get more annoying when the duo try to access the Undercity, only to be stopped by another Sith guard who won't let them pa- who won't the- <clears throat> who won't let them pass without appropriate authorization. After running around the lower city for a bit, Revan and Karth make their way into the hidden Beck base. They talk to Gadden Thek, who tells them that the Becks are in a turf war with the Volkers and need to win the big season opening swoop race. However, those Volker jerks stole a prototype swoop, a prototype swoop bike engine from the Bex that would have allowed them to win the race. 
Also, the Black Volkers are led by Gadden's former protege, Bredgic, who is is coincidentally offering a captured Jedi Knight to the winner of the big race. Thek offers to sponsor Revan in the Terra season opener if he will retrieve the prototype engine. This quick quid pro quo will help Revan and Karth in two ways. First, Gadden provides his authorization papers to access the Undercity, and second, it allows them to win win back Bastila in the swoop race. This is like the plot of an old Happy Days episode where the gang gets to soup up their hot rod before the big race in order to defend their best gal's honor, whatever it was people in the 60s did. Uh, Not to worry, Gadden Thick tells our heroes that a 40-year-old street urchin named Mission Veo can sneak them into the Black Volcar base via the sewers. It is under this pretense that Karth and Revan gain access to the lower to the Undercity. Upon arriving, things are far worse than they ever imagined. The outcasts, as Undercity inhabitants were known, lived in abject squalor, had almost no food, and never saw the light of day. Also, there were the constant rat goal attacks. Character Profile Mission Vow Born in 3970 on Terrace, Mission Vow is just 14 years old when the events of Knights of the Old Republic began. Although she hated being underestimated due to her age, proving that the kids are alright mission was an invaluable companion to Revan during their journey to find the Star Forge. Mission grew up as an orphan on Terrace where she was looked after by her older brother Griff. When Vow first shows up in the story in 3963, she's hanging around the hidden decks and is instrumental in joining the terrorist resistance to the Mandalorian invasion. This despite being just seven years old when she crosses paths with Zane Carrick in issue 22 of the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Zane is on terrorist to help the resistance and clear his name after being framed for the Padawan Massacre. Mission informed Zane that Brajic, who is still in the Hidden Vex at this time, and her brother Griff had kidnapped two children. Gavin Thek had ordered his gang not to do this, but was able to use the opportunity to negotiate an alliance with the Resistance. The mother of the kidnapped children was the constable, a high-ranking member of Resistance. If you want to hear more about that, you can check out episode 16. About two years before the beginning of Night Tale of the Republic, when Mission was 12, her brother Griff abandoned her on Terrace for, after taking up with a Twi'lek dancer named Lena. Vow held on to her hatred of Lena, and it would become the focal point of her companion... Com- Sorry, companion loyalty mission in the game. Later, Mission met Big Z and tried in vain to defend him from being picked on and abused by some black walkers. Zahalbar was moved by this and protected Mission from the thugs, nearly killing one. Thereafter, the two decided to look out for one another until joining up with Revan. While in the Undercity, Revan and Karth helped out the outcast immensely. First, they picked up some Rap Ghoul Serum off a dead Sith Trooper, which was returned to Zelka Forn in the Upper City Clinic. Hundreds of vials of the synthesized serum were sent back to the outcast immediately, which essentially cured the disease for the group. Then, our daring duo agreed to help Rukil, the leader of the outcast, who wanted to lead his people to the fabled Promised Land. He believed, and he believed that his father's and grand and grandfather's journals contained the map. Sadly, the journals were lost in the sewer, and Rukil's assistant already died going down there trying to find them. Moved by the plight of the starving people who likely had space rickets due to a lack of sunlight, Revan and Carthonassi agreed to keep an eye out for the journals when they ventured into the sewers. 
Finding both, they returned the journals to Rukil, and the outcast leader was able to piece together a map uh, from those journals, and most of the group left to venture through the sewers. The group was mostly protected from Darth Malak's bombardment by, uh, by being underground, though Rukil did perish at the time. The Old Republic MMO confirmed that Revan and his companions did in fact assist the outcast and that they did find the promised land. Unfortunately, it was not the paradise they believed it would have been, and the outcast had to restart society on Terrace. Had to restart society on Terrace, despite being plagued by hunger and disease, when the rat ghouls eventually developed an immunity to the serum. After a valiant effort to persevere, the outcast died off due to the same toxic waste that had killed the kelp so many years earlier. In their final recorded statement, the surviving outcast who emerged on the surface had no idea of where they had come from or why the planet was ruined. In 3641, a group of heroes discovered the recording and passed it to a local historian who wrote everything down about Terrace and the outcast for posterity. By now, Revan and Karth have met the street urchin Gadon Thek. They had met the street urchin that Gadon Thek told them about, Mission Vow. However, the young Twi'lek has problems of her own. Her Wookiee friend and bodyguard Zalbar has been captured in the sewers by Gamorrean slavers and is being held for sale. In return for Revan and Karth's help in rescuing Big Z, Mission agreed to show them a secret backdoor into the Black Volker base that leads them through the sewer. So, for the first time, the group has swelled to three members as Mission Vow joins the team. The Twi'lek is a slicer, a pickpocket good with a stealth generator, and can hold her own in a fight. As the trio proceeded through the upper and lower sewers, they encountered a number of Gamorrean warriors and rackles, but best of them all. Finally, the group found Mission's friend Zalbar, who swore a life debt to Revan for saving him from a life of slavery. Seems unfair that Karth and Mission didn't get life debts too, since they helped, but that would complicate the narrative now, wouldn't it? Now, Revan must make his most perilous choice yet, choosing which companion must sit out on the raid. Sit out the raid on the Black Volker base. Character profile: Zalbar, affectionately known as Big Z. The Wookiee Zalbar was born on Kashik to the Wookiee chieftain Freyr. Yep, we'll we'll go with that pronunciation. At some point before thirty nine fifty six. Zalbar's tribe was raided by slavers, including the Zerka Corporation. After a few incidents, Zalbar discovered that his brother, Chundar, was making deals with the slavers to sell fellow Wookiees into captivity. Big Z flew into a rage and attacked his brother, used his claws during the fight, breaking a sacred Wookiee tradition. Chundar survived and Zalbar was, ex- was exiled excuse me, from Kashik for his breach of etiquette. Big Z tried to bring his brother's crimes to light, but their father wouldn't hear of it. This backstory, this backstory becomes important when the Ebon Hawk lands on Kashik in search of the Starforge. During his exile, Zalbar arrived on Terrace and was immediately set by Black Volkars, looking to fight the Wookiee. Zalbar wouldn't fight them, but when a young Twi'lek kid tried to defend him and the Volkars went to attack the girl, Big Z grabbed one of the attackers by the neck and scared them off. After that, Zalbar and Mission were pretty much inseparable, with Veo acting as the family Big Z had lost, and Big Z acting like the loving family Veo never had. While Revan and Karf were running around Terrace, Zalbar was captured by Gamorrean slayers and imprisoned in the lower sewers, and we know how things turned out from there. 
Big Z is a Wookiee with a heart of gold who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty to help his friends and fellow Wookiees. In summing up his own abilities, Big Z said, quote, unless you want someone threatened or a door bashed in, you should ask someone else, end quote. Actually, there's probably a lot of growls and, and whatnot, but, you know, we had to translate. <laughs> Uh, so Mission must stay in the group because she knows how to bypass the force field, blocking the route into the Volker base, and Revan must choose between Karth and Big Z. Since he's new and Wookiees are great, we'll take Salbar and send Karth back to wherever it is campaigns go when they aren't questing. The trio move on through the lower sewer, but there's a very big problem. Namely, a full-grown Rancor that's mad as hell. Now, the group could try to sneak past or run, or run by, but where's the fun and XP in that? Instead, we're going to choose to feed the Rancor a grenade using synthesized pheromones that resemble the Rancor's favorite prey. The group obtained these pheromones from a single severed arm near the Rancor's lair. The severed arm belonged to a member of the Hidden Backs who was trying to sneak past the Rancor before becoming a meal. Conveniently, it contained pheromones in a datapad with details about the Valker base. Knowing this, Revan coats a frag grenade with pheromones and leaves it on the Rancor's corpse pile, Cueing a cutscene that shows the Rancor taking the bait and then immediately regretting the decision. As our trio sneak by, the Rancor's mouth explodes in light, killing the beast instantly. Did you ever get past that in the game? I remember you you were on that at some point, right? This is exactly as far as I am. Yeah, we've uh, we've we've got we, we've got we've got big news. Um, Kelsey is playing through Knights of the Old Republic right now um, for the first time. And uh, so, um, you know, just going to just going to conveniently ask him every once in a while how it's going. And, uh, you know, he'll probably (laughs) he'll probably, uh, you know, not have been able to play it much because, you know, that's how that's how real life works. But, you know, you didn't get to play it at all this summer, did you? I did no, no. I was uh, I was uh, spent three months away from the computer that has it on it. So uh, whoops. It's okay though. It's good. I'm excited to dive in. Spoilers ahead. Inside the Black Volker base, the main quest on Terrace once again turns into a Rube Goldberg, Rube Goldberg device of annoying bullshit. Instead of being able to grab the prototype engine and flee, the group finds out the device is actually in the garage, which requires them to access an elevator, but it's guarded by one-shot kill death cannons. Without a pass card to deactivate the turrets, there's no way to proceed. So Revan, Mission, and Big Z go rough up, rough up a few more gang members until they find it until they find a key card for the elevator. In the garage below, the engine room is also sealed behind an uncrackable door, so the group kills a few mechanics to get into the engine room. Inside, Revan, Mission, and Zalbar blast their way through through some Volkers and are confronted by Candon Ark, Brezik's top lieutenant. Ark attempts to bribe the group into killing Gadden Thick, but Mission and Revan aren't having any of that nonsense. Candon's bodyguard, bodyguards intervene, and a shootout ensues with our heroes killing the Volkers and finally, at long last, stealing the prototype swoop racing engine. When the engine is returned to the Hidden Beck base, Gadden is elated and immediately enters Revan in the big season opening swoop race scheduled for the following day. As Revan entered the swoop platform the next morning, he was greeted by a host of race, racers from a number of species and the race's announcer. 
He's informed that the time to beat is 38.43 seconds. And interestingly, if Revan doesn't beat that time in five tries, the swoop, the prototype engine in his swoop bike will overheat and explode. This is one of the few instances where Revan dies for failing a quest, which would end the game prematurely and result in the Sith domination of the galaxy, etc., etc. Of course, that doesn't happen because Revan bests all the all challengers inexplicably winning the terrace season opener despite never racing a swoop bike before. There's something special about this guy, apparently. Shockingly, Rezik is reluctant to park with Bastila Shan, his Jedi prisoner. The Black Volker leader restrained Bastila with a neural disruptor after he found out she wasn't a simple Republic commander, but a Jedi. Neural disruptors are supposed to incapacitate prisoners and break a Jedi's connection to the Force, but, as Bredrick is about to find out, the Force is a powerful ally. As Revan is crowned the winner by the race announcer, Bredrick dramatically withdraws the prize to the consternation of fans and racers. Bredrick claims he will sell Bastila as a slave and reap the profits himself, but Bastila doesn't have time for his bluster. Drawing upon her powerful connection to the Force, Sean broke the neural disruptor's restraints and freed herself. Brazik was horrified and ordered his goons to attack as Bastila flung her cage open with the force. If Revan was smart, he stayed out of it because Shan is bulletproof right now. Like, she literally can't be harmed in the game during this fight. The Jedi may not kill their prisoners, but they have no qualms with killing their captors. Finally, Revan meets Bastila Shan in its love at first sight, or second sight. It doesn't matter because they start to bicker immediately. Second sight. Bastila is always brash and outspoken, which is a very good thing, but she's kind of a jerk to Revan. Shan will even deign to thank Revan until he mentions Kartha Nasi, which causes her to reconsider. Shan realizes that Karth wouldn't have sent this Republic soldier if he wasn't capable. Humorously, if Revan doesn't immediately loot Brezik's corpse after they talk, Bastila does it herself. It's possibly the only time that happens in the entire game. Shan, yellow double-bladed lightsaber in hand, is the fourth companion on Revan's journey, and the couple heads off to find Karth and escape Terrace. With the deaths of Brezik and most of the Black Falkers, the 20-year-long swoop gang war ended thanks to Revan and his companions. You know, they ended it just like a Jedi would. They killed everyone. Yeah, that's it. Um, character profile, Bastila Shan. One of the most powerful Jedi ever, the matriarch of the Shan Force Dynasty, Jedi Master, and briefly, Dark Lord of the Sith under Darth Malak. Bastila Shan did it all. Born on Tal Ravin, about 10 years after Mitra Surik, which is an incredibly specific piece of in- info, but that's kind of what we do here. Bastila's parents were Helena Shan and an unnamed hunter. From a very young age, Bastila was a daddy's girl, believing that her mother constantly pushed her father into dangerous hunts to fund her lavish lifestyle. When Bastila was discovered to be Force-sensitive, she didn't want to leave because of her attachment to her father, but her mother insisted. This strained relationship is the impetus for Bastila's companion loyalty mission in the game, which occurs when Revan and the crew land on Tatooine searching for one of the star maps. But we'll get there. After Bastila entered the Jedi Order, she quickly became a top student and an excellent Jedi Sentinel. During her training, Sham was also found to have manifested the Force ability Battle Meditation. Bastila was also present when the Jedi Knight Malak rallied 
rallied support for Jedi to join the revanchist Jedi in the Mandalorian Wars. While most present, including Mitra Surik, joined Revan's fight, Shan held firm and adopted a more conservative outlook on the Force, like the, high, the Jedi High Council uh, she sought to emulate. As she grew older, she moderated her views when she saw what she was doing, though she re- retained a somewhat fundamentalist view of the Jedi Code. Bastila was firmly anti-death penalty, believing that everyone should be given a chance to redeem themselves no matter their crimes. This would play a large role in her decision to save Darth Revan on his flagship. After the outbreak of the Jedi Civil War, Bastila became integral to the Republic and Jedi resurgence. The the Jedi and Republic were nearly broken early in the war, but Bastila's early mastery of battle meditation staved off annihilation for a little while longer. Battle meditation was so powerful it could turn the tide of entire battles, boosting her allies' resolve and weakening that of her enemies. You'll recall that Darth Malak feared and coveted Bastila's power to such a degree that half of the Sith fleet was searching for Bastila on Terrace. We'll talk more about battle meditation in a few episodes. In late 3957, Bastila was again integral to Republic plans, this time leading a team to board Darth Revan's flagship and attempt to capture him. It's unclear whether Bastila and Revan dueled or not, with some artwork in one of the in-game visions implying they did, while the full vision in that deal Republic shows Malak's betrayal occurring before they crossed lightsabers. If she did fight the Dark Lord, though, it appears she held her own and maybe even bested him in a duel. Regardless, Revan was knocked unconscious by the turbolaser fire from Malak's flagship. In that moment, Bastila thought back to the Jedi Code and decided to save Darth Revan since the Jedi respect life and Sean believed he could be redeemed. The act created an incredible force bond between the two. She then took the unconscious Revan to Dantooine, where the planet's Jedi Enclave Council decided to wipe the Dark Lord's old identity and give him a blank slate in an attempt to find the Star Forge. In 3956, Bastila was made fleet commander and used the Endar Spire as her transport vessel where she kept an eye on the amnesiac Revan. We'll discuss much more of Shan's character later, but right now it's just time to talk about the possible origins of Shan's character. Point of interest. What is the Sunrider naming controversy? Put simply, the controversy stems from the possibility that Bastila Shan's character was originally going to be Vemus Sunrider from Tales of the Jedi. This is unconfirmed, and there's evidence both for and against, so we'll present both both sides and let you decide. Have you ever wondered why none of the characters from Tales of the Jedi show up in Knights of the Old Republic? I, I have. Uh, the final installment of Tales takes place exactly 30 years before KOTOR, so it would stand to reason that young humans and long-lived aliens would still be around. Except there's nothing save, save for a few references to some, some of these legendary Jedi and Sith in, in equipment descriptions. While a lot of that can be explained by, Bioware, by Bioware's developers wanting the game to be an homage to the original trilogy, but that answer still feels com- incomplete in some ways. After all, the game's title is taken from the title of the first five issues of Tales released, in, released between 1993 and 1994, which was collectively called Tales of the Jedi, Knights of the Old Republic. And seriously, no mention of the only other Old Republic Jedi around in the Star Wars universe? Uh, The name Sunrider and members of that family were even referenced numerous times in the late 90s in various Expanded Universe publications. So what gives? In 2005, Chris 
Avalon responded to a fan question on the Obsidian forums saying, quote, Vima was supposed to be Bastula in K1, seriously, but there are legal issues with using the name Sunrider, so we were not allowed to use it in K2, end quote. Avalon was the lead designer and writer for Night and a writer for Knights of the Old Republic 2, so he'd have some knowledge of the whole thing. There's also a piece of concept art with a character that distinctly resembled Bastilasan's final appearance with Sunrider Dash Corrupted as a title. It appears that a lawsuit was ongoing, but the identities of the parties and issues in controversy are disputed. Some informed speculation holds that Jeep and LucasArts were locked in litigation over the name Sunrider, which Jeep trademarked and wanted to use for an accessory on one of its vehicles. Jeep would later sell Sunrider soft tops until at least 2010 and maybe even later than that. However, in a 2006 forum response to user question, Star Wars writer Kyle Jewerst stated that the lawsuit was actually between LucasArts and Dark Horse Comics. Jewhurst claimed that Dark Horse sued Tales of the Jedi author Tom Veach, um, sued because Tales of the Jedi author Tom Veach attempted to use the name Sunrider in another work. In either case, Jahani's character's name was supposed to be Bastos Sean, and obviously Bastos' character would have been Vima Sunrider. Well, that seems like a fine argument, and maybe the Occam's Razor situation for all this. It may also be nothing at all. All that evidence is circumstantial, regardless of how highly we value Chris Avalon's contributions to both Star Wars and Fallout. Uh, Avalon wasn't at Bioware for the development of Knights of the Old Republic, and Cal Jewhurst wrote one story on StarWars.com in 2006, and it didn't even have anything to do with Knights of the Old Republic or Tales. Further, we have definitive quotes on the subject of inspiration from Bioware writers and developers. They said it was an homage to the original trilogy, even if they did use a couple of naming conventions from the Tales series. Curiously, there was a novel about v- Nomi and Vima Sunrider scheduled for a 2012 release, but it was canceled due to shifting story priorities, whatever that means. Uh, the novel, which was titled Mandorla and would have been set around 3980 BBY, six years after Redemption. According to author Alex Irvin, the story would have focused on Nomi and Vima's relationship and them fighting off a resurgent Sith Mandalorian threat. Honestly, that kind of sounds like when the Sith Emperor influenced Mandalore the Ultimate to war, which was a plot point in the 2012 novel Revan. So maybe all we have are some some circumstantial comments, the name of a Jeep accessory, a piece of concept art, and a cancelled novel. That's not a ton to build a case with. But then again, the thing that TV shows like Law & Order don't really tell you is that you can you can win a case using only circumstantial evidence. It happens all the time. So who really knows? Back in the story, Revan and Bastila have arrived back at the safe house and they decide to sleep because it's cutscene time. Revan dreams of a female Jedi Knight who, come to think of it, looks an awful lot like Bastila. She's fighting a dark Jedi and then confronts a hooded Sith Lord, calling out, You cannot win, Revan. That's the first time the name is spoken in the game, we think. At least the hooded figure, whoever this Revan character is, got to look cool, force-choking a Republic soldier in the beginning of the vision. Karth returns later, waking the others, but he's excited to see Bastila. 
and it devolves into an argument about who's in charge, with Revan being the one to calm everyone down, which is a nice change of pace. They agree to work together and go into the cantinas to search for any leads on getting off the doomed planet. Almost as soon as the group departed their safe house, Revan and Basta were tracked down by a twilight with a message from a Mandalorian named Candorous Ordo. Revan and Karth had previously met Candorous briefly when they were in the Lower City. He's an enforcer for the local exchange crime lord Davik Kang. He can be found in one of the two cantinas and kickstarts the last part of the main quest on Terrace. We'll say they meet him in Jaivar's cantina so we can introduce the big scary bounty hunter of this game, Kalo Nord. He always wears old-timey flight goggles and a pilot's scarf at all times. Honestly, Nord looks like the Red Baron, which detracts from the allure. He's introduced by a cutscene where some thugs try to hassle him and he counts to three like an annoyed parent before killing the thugs. If the player chooses to try their luck with Kalo Nord here, Revan dies because the bounty hunter can't be harmed at that moment. After the cutscene, Revan and Candorous get down to brass tacks. Ordo is a Mandalorian mercenary, and he's looking to get off Terrace because even he can see that Malak is about to rain fire. His boss sent him with orders to steal launch codes from the Sith base because any ship leaving Terrace without the codes will be blown out of the sky. Candorous admits that getting him won't be easy, but, but they'll need a top-of-the-line astromech, just like the T3 model Davik has on hold at the Droid Emporium. That's its real name. Uh, the Mandalorian can't go himself because he, he can't go into the Sith base himself because they know who he works for. So why is he so willing to betray Davik Kane so easily? Candor says that he saw Revan in the swoop race earlier and was impressed. Anyone reckless enough to drive a swoop bike with an experimental engine is probably reckless enough to break into the Sith base for launch codes. Bastila senses no deception in Ordo, and so they form an alliance, but Candorous can't join the party just yet. Instead, Revan and company are off to visit Janus Nall at the Droid Emporium. Earlier, Revan and Karth tried to buy a newer T tried to buy the newer T3, but it was on hold, so they purchased another T3 unit from Nall for a mere 50 credits. Unfortunately, the droid fatally malfunctioned as soon as it crossed the store's threshold. This time, however, Revan is able to purchase the top-of-the-line T3 unit, named T3M4, for 2,000 credits after saying that Candorous sent them. With the astromech droid in the party, the gang can now break into the Sith base to steal launch codes. Normally, we'd have profile we'd have character profiles for Candorous Ordo and T3 and 4 right here, but those are going to have to wait until next episode so we can get off Terrace this time. Before entering the Sith base, Revan has to decide which companions to include in his party, since T3 is technically only there to open the door. Obviously, he takes Basta because who's turning down the chance to use a lightsaber at this point? All things considered, the Sith base is a quick quest, but the group does face off against two notable enemies. The first is a Sith receptionist, who is notable because we now know that the Sith use administrative assistance. Sure, Revan could bribe her to leave, and probably did that since it's a light side choice, but then we wouldn't get to make the, this belabored joke about Sith job titles. The boss of the Sith base is a bald guy wearing black and chrome armor who looks like a character model of Darth Bandon, but it's not Darth Bandon, it's the Sith Governor. Angered that his meditation was interrupted, the Force-sensitive Governor rose to fight Revan's crew and hopefully earn his lightsaber. 
We don't know who his master was, but it's very funny that he had to earn a lightsaber despite being in his 30s when Jedi build their first lightsabers as children. After Revan Bastila and the brave little toaster T3 depose the Sith governor, they make for the command center where they steal the launch codes. Before departing, Revan probably freed the the Duro that he and Karth first met when they left the safe house for the first time and saw a Sith official kill the Duro's friend for being an alien. The nameless Duro said he would move the body, but apparently didn't do a good enough job because he got pinched. Thankfully, Revan is all light side and frees the Duro, not that it's going to do him much good after leaving the base. Revan meets Candrus Ordo at Javar's Cantina with the codes, and the Mandalorian agrees to join up, becoming the the sixth and final companion Revan meets on Terrace. Once the group, once Candorus joins the group, we know the end is nigh for Terrace. A cutscene begins, introducing us to the Sith leadership. On the command deck of his flagship, Darth Malak declares that the search for Bastlin has taken too long, and orders his admiral Saul Karath to destroy the planet. Karath is taken aback as there are billions of people on Terrace and many Sith troops as well, but, Mad- but Malik threatens his life as motivation. Karath agrees to destroy Terrace, though he says it will take a few hours to get the fleet in position. Back on Terrace, Candorus gets Revan inside Davik's estate, claiming that he is a new recruit for the exchange. Before entering, Revan and the crew cleared up any remaining side quests because the main quest is locked is locked in once the player enters Davik's estate. Davik agrees to take Revan in as a new recruit and gives him a tour of the state, estate, including the garage where King's flagship, the Evan Hawk, is parked. Kalonord is also present, bickering with Candorus the whole time. When the tour ends, Revan is taken to his suite while Davik and Kalo Nord go off to do something evil, like find more slaves or whatever they did for fun. Now Revan and Candorus are free to go back to the garage and escape in the Evan Hawk after they do one more tedious fetch quest to find codes to disable the ship's security system. While searching for the codes, the group frees a man named Hudro from, from a torture cage and stumble upon Davik's spice smuggling operations. Finally, Revan and Candorus and whoever was chosen for this mission find the codes and make it and make it to the hangar, which is good because the Sith bombardment of Terrace is starting. Davik and Kalo confront the group but are no match for our heroes as they race to the Evan Hawk. The brief firefight kills Davik King, wounds Kalo Nord, and clears the way to board the Evan Hawk. Before departing Terrace, the Evan Hawk docks briefly to pick up the other companions and prepares the launch. Meanwhile, the Sith bombardment has stopped momentarily. High above, Admiral Karath informs Darth Malak that much of the city is in ruins and Terrace is offering no resistance. In his gruff, electronic voice, Malak orders the destruction of Terrace to resume. Wipe this pathetic planet from the face of the galaxy. I haven't gotten there, so I don't actually know the voice yet. But I, that scene, was nice. I liked. I'm not even kidding. That was good. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, so I'm going to have to add in like, like some really bad microphone interference there, you know, so we get the sound effect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That was good. Oh, I like that. <laughs> no worries. So the cutscene continues as we see Malik's flagship unleash all its turbo lasers on the planet below. The Iban Hawk takes off with Revan and six companions on board. Karth Anassi pilots the ship past turbo laser fire and crumbling buildings before departing Terrace completely. 
Unfortunately, the Iban Hawk was chased by a few Sith starfighters, and Revan is forced to endure a clunky turret control minigame. After the Sith fighters are dispatched, the Iban Hawk jumps to hyperspace, making for Dantooine and the planet's Jedi Enclave. Back on Terrace, the losses are catastrophic. In a matter of moments, all of Terrace's uniform rounded buildings are turned to rubble. Billions died in the bombardment, including almost everyone we met on the planet in the Sith Forces still stationed there. The only known survivors on Terrace were the outcasts moving through the sewers toward the Promised Land. One swoop racer and the bounty hunter Kayla Nord. When the destruction ended, no building taller than two stories were left standing anywhere on the city planet. And with that, another apocalypse behind us, we will end our story for the week. Thank you all for listening <laughs> to Eternals History of the Old Republic. Next time, we'll land on Dantooine, find out we're Force-sensitive, meet the worst Jedi Council ever, and finally do the one thing we've always wanted to do. Build a lightsaber. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at PhotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>